This is Coda Radio, episode 406, for March 22nd, 2021. Hey there, good looking, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the RM business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a Cloud Guru. A Cloud Guru now includes Cloud Playground, Azure, AWS, or Google Sandboxes. All on ACG's credit card, not on yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. Who, me? Well, my name is Chris, but what's really important is that host of ours who's in the podcasting position as we start to give us yet another week of fine Coda Radio entertainment. Hello, Mike. Chris. Audio has changed. We had core audio. We had audio kit. But now, proxy kernels fighting kernel extensions for your microphone (laughs) on macOS Big Sur. Audio has changed. And I'm coming from the trenches of pipe wire. (laughs) Let us not forget about the horrible routing that is Pulse Audio. Sorry again, guys. And I'm not sorry at all. Does it help that they're working on it? Does that make you feel better at all? They're like real close now. Like, you know, the next version of Fedora... It's not using actual Pulse Audio anymore. Yeah, it must be a union job. That's all I'll say about it. <laughs> so you sold your ThinkPad keyboard. You were all proud of this ThinkPad keyboard that you got because uh, you're were, you were on the show. I remember you're like, well, it's like a ThinkPad, but it's just the keyboard, and, and it's fantastic. Popey, you, 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 you said thank you to Popey. No, no, I didn't sell it. Somebody bought another one who listened to the show. Oh, you're selling them. You're selling them now. I see. Yeah, no, no, I didn't. I didn't sell the one I have. No, somebody bought. Oh, man, I thought I, I thought like maybe I had my chance to get back at you for the HomePod stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm still running Adium, yeah. and I and I did buy two HomePods. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I'm curious though is how's that Doge tripping going? Are you uh, still playing the Doge game? Are you- <laughs> uh, let's take a live Robin Hood check, shall we? Oh boy, oh boy! You know, I was going to give you a real hard time, but then I saw this article by the Wall Street Journal, and it says that now Doge, which was created for laughs, is now worth more than Western Union, Under Armour, or Xerox. Doge is worth more than Xerox. I am down $14.87, which people who know what Dogecoin goes for knows how much money I invested in Dogecoin. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was doing really well on Robinhood, but like every gambler, I did not know when to walk away. So did they pull you in with the Wall Street bet stuff, and then uh, you stuck around for uh, just having a good time? You know how sometimes I say really mean things on here and we get bad feedback? Yeah. Okay. I find it offensive when stupid people make money. Oh, I got you. Sure. It's like, I here I am. I'm, I'm working. I'm thinking all the time. I'm always making these plans. So, yes. Now, the Dogecoin, I'm like, it's so cheap. And one of the things that burns me is that I missed Bitcoin. I could have bought Bitcoin. I knew about Bitcoin. But I was like, the government will shut you down. The penguin, rah, Cobra Commander. Your buddy Chris was like, let's talk about Bitcoin. And I was like, F- you. Ah, it makes no sense. But no, no. In fact, you and I would both be millionaires at this point. So... I don't want to talk about it. I mean, you know, I, my 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 history with Bitcoin is tragic because I had about half of them stolen in a breach at one point. Oh my god! And then at various times, although I I don't actually regret this because I think when it comes to investing, there's you can't predict no, the future. I'm sorry, no, you straight up jar jarred that up. Yeah, that 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 whole that that stunk. Yeah, the getting because that was just so many bitcoins at the time though. They were only worth like. 
I don't know, maybe 20 bucks, 25 bucks. So like I didn't really get super upset, but now looking back at it, you know, it was it was probably 60 bitcoins or something like that. <laughs> Oh, that's roughly thirty three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It'd be wild. It'd be wild now, right? Because as we record, the price is fifty four thousand. It fluctuates like crazy. Oh, it's higher. But I I spent a lot of my Bitcoin on the studio. You know, that's where the, a lot of the these components came from, and I, I feel like that was a good use of it too. But yeah, you look back at it, it's wild, and you do think this. There seems to be some kind of market here. I don't know if it's people that are just playing for fun or what, but people like these digital tokens. That they can buy and sell. Not everybody does, but it seems like a lot of people do. I, I don't know what it means. Maybe it's uh, that dystopian future that we've been worried about, and it's here now. Maybe it's that. I have a concept coin I'd like to pitch. Oh, yeah? I call it J-Coin. Okay. And every time somebody writes something in VB6 or PHP, uh-huh. or just some really awful, stupid bug, I will release more J-Coin. <laughs> now, the J could stand for John, Jared, Jeanette, Janelle, Jocelyn, Jar Jar. I think it's a coin with a philosophy. Yeah, okay. Every time someone's password on their enterprise IT system is password 123, well, 123,000 J coins will be released. Wow. He's a jackass. I think what you should do is the individual coin should be called Binks. <laughs> you know? Like, so how many Binks is something? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would do it just to be able to every week say, and this is our Binks check in. Uh. <laughs> Oh man, I hope that never happens. I I think uh, what we should do instead is focus on the podcast thing. Okay, come on though. If they were like point zero five cents, you throw fifty bucks at, at, at the binks. Uh, you know, I might I might get a few binks. Yeah, especially if I could if I could trade them with other JB listeners. You know. And what if you could exclusively buy HomePods with them? <laughs> Black market HomePods. And so the value of the J coin. Uh, is set on how many binks it takes to purchase a HomePod. Right, and as the HomePods become rarer, obviously the J-Coin goes up. Right. You know what's incredible about the J-Coin? And this is a story Bitcoin cannot claim? Very environmentally friendly. Yes. Because you're repurposing HomePods so they don't go in the landfill. No GPU required because you're releasing it based on a random factor of bugs that get introduced into the wild. So, I mean, this seems not only environmentally friendly, but like it could give people a good listening experience ultimately. I would also suggest it is not a fiat currency in a traditional sense because it's backed by a hard asset, and that is the number of HomePods that currently exist right. in the world. Which Bitcoin can't claim either. Just saying. It's not backed by a hard asset, right? It's backed It's backed by the value people say it's worth, but but the J-Coin would be backed by the value of a HomePod, which is getting more valuable all the time, as you say. So that suggests we would need some sort of vault of HomePods like Fort Knox. That's just like... You know, you and I could seed it with an initial fund like, you know, the Rockefellers. We could be like the initial bank. (laughs) I can't even say this, but I bought two HomePods. I'm considering buying two more. Wow. They're so good. The thing is, is my wife is is no good in this because she also loves them. She listens to music all the time. Like she always has music going. She's kind of like, oh, maybe we should buy one more, you know, just in case. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful it goes somewhere. I've been listening to BBC radio plays, and there's something about listening to whoever the hell plays George Smiley. Uh, in the old BBC John Le Carre novels, it's Patrick Stewart or radio plays. It is not Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart actually plays his enemy in the old movie. He plays uh, the Russian guy. Really? Yeah. So you got that right, even though you made it up. Weird. It's just this is the only British actor I could think of quickly. <laughs> and also it messes with my kid because now I have him all the time. So 
he thinks when he hears a voice that is not like with music behind it that I'm on the phone. Mm. I don't know how to say this nicely. Um, when daddy's on the phone, silence is gold. Yeah, so not, not time to be loud, right? So sometimes daddy plays BBC Shakespeare productions and John Lacart. <laughs> Interesting te- technique. I should try that. I say watch that space. We have something more to get to in the show for that for that for that space. But I have a prediction to make shortly. I see two lisp things in the document, and I'm, I, I gotta say, Wes, get a hobby. I love the idea that Wes sent in lisp emails. All right. So we should do the feedback. Our first one came in from Jim, and it's a question on imposter syndrome. Says, I recently got promoted outside my scope into a more architect engineer position. How do you deal with the stress or the imposter syndrome that seems to come along with this? I feel that there were episodes of Code or maybe it was somewhere else on the network that touched on this, but I cannot recall what your comments were. Love the show. Would be glad if you touch on this. Uh, thanks, Jim. So this is tricky, right? So Jim gets promoted to doing something he's never done before, right? But every manager at some point was doing the work and hopefully it happened that way, got promoted to being a manager at some point. Like that's how it, that's how it naturally goes. So he's in a very natural position here, but he's getting that, that imposter syndrome that sneaks in. I don't really have a lot to speak to that, but I'm wondering if you have any tricks or techniques or any experience with that. Yeah. I mean, on the, I think it's two different issues, right? But I'll start with the imposter syndrome. I mean, as someone who's self-taught and did, does not have a CS degree for people who haven't been listening a long time, my degree is in medieval literature, which is insane. Imposter syndrome is a big, big problem when you're starting out. And then at least my experience was once you're like five, six, 10 plus years in, you don't care anymore. Stress? I mean, it depends on the kind of stress. Like for me, the stressful stuff is working on mission critical systems that could have an outage, right? Deployments are hyper stressful for me. And I know that's very old school and somebody will write in with something snarky about continuous deployment. And I will say, yeah, that's nice in an idealistic world, but it's not real. Um, At least not at the scale that I'm operating at. Listen to you preemptively like deflecting emails. (laughs) I'm just going to say, how many years of email have I been getting now? Like, <laughs> pachoo, pachoo. You're like Wonder Woman with the, like the, the, the things on the arms. You're like deflecting. Let me tell you something. If I looked like the new Wonder Woman, never mind. We should move on. Um, <laughs> this, this would be a YouTube show for, for first of all. <laughs> this would be a video production, my friend. I somehow feel like we'd sell a lot more robes. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. We'd, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. So what do you think, though, for Jim here? Yeah, I think, Jim, it depends on the type of stress. I mean, you know, at some point, you can't care more than the the end users. So if that's what's getting to you, like if you have a deployment, the end users aren't getting the information or the assets or whatever it is that you need, then oh well, right? Like that's on them. You might have to have a bad conversation, but that's life. Yeah. But general stress, I you know what? Changing technologies is tough. You said changing from a manager to someone who used to do it. That is stressful, right? Becoming the manager is it's a different type of, I guess, like mental orientation that you have to have. Um, one of my big struggles is actually not wanting to just dive in and be like, no, I'll just do it. Hmm. But it's it's just a discipline thing. I mean, the way I do it is I break down. I have certain times in the day where I do coding. I have certain times in the day where I do like business development. I have certain times in the day where I do like general customer, whatever, product management stuff. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. I do it more by the days myself. These days are for that kind of stuff. Other days are for show production. Okay, yeah, that could work too, right? I, I don't think there's like a like a silver bullet 
solution. It's whatever makes you feel better and that you're not like basket casing yourself to sleep. Jim, do what soothes you. If you're feeling like you have imposter syndrome, it might really translate to feel like maybe there's an area where you have a deficiency of knowledge and and that insecurity of that deficiency is what's causing that imposter syndrome. So embrace it and dive in and figure out whatever area that is and just live it, breathe it, research it. And I think it'll prop that probably will also help. So that's one thing. We have one that I want to break down and kind of take in pieces because I have been where listener Matt is. And man, is it a tough spot. So he says, uh, good day, Mike and Chris. He is from Australia. I have a problem. I'm hoping to run past both of you. I don't want to turn this into a humble brag, but what I do has given me good job security and we're doing okay financially. I work with a Microsoft product in software support and consulting. It's SharePoint. I can feel it. Sorry. You are probably right. He says, I'm at a point in my career where I'm finding it hard to stay motivated because my heart is no longer in it. I have so been here where I was stuck in doing IT consulting, and this was at the heyday of XP. I couldn't get out of this like mental cage I had built for myself about just being in agony about having to constantly fix busted XP machines. I had some really heavy-hitting lawyer clients that were really deadline-driven, and when there was an IT failure that caused them to delay they did not handle it in a way that would be considered appropriate today. Like, this wasn't even that long ago, and the stuff these guys got away with is like the stuff you see in, in movies. It was ridiculous. Is this like Wall Street or more Wolf of Wall Street? It's like, you know, throwing drinks at people, calling people, you know, derogatory terms and yelling at everyone in the office. And I remember this one time, this is one that really, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was... It was some just, just south of $10 million deal that they were trying to wrap up. And the guy's machine was just completely falling apart. He got so much email. I had never seen a human being that could do this much email, this, this lawyer. He was their highest-end lawyer in the whole place. And his Outlook busted on him, which it did all the time back in the day because Outlook had these really small limits on, like, the PSD file sizes, which he would constantly exceed. God, they were so cheap. They were paying for some busted-ass early hosting exchange system that was just total garbage. And I got in there and discovered that it was essentially just junk that he'd gotten on his machine that had fouled up all Internet Explorer integration because he had been browsing porn in the evening. <laughs> and I was like, if I if I had to clean up and it was, you know, this guy's screaming at me and this this like nine million dollar deal is on the line and something snapped in me and I just couldn't from that point on, I hated working on XP machines. And I eventually had to fire all of my clients that I couldn't get out of that work just because it was driving me nuts. I was like in this mental cage. Of, I just tortured myself with it. And uh, I just didn't find it interesting anymore. I didn't, I didn't want to do any of that work anymore. And my passion at the time was in podcasting. But like uh, our, our uh, emailer here, uh, Matt, his passion is in software development. He says, my career has just organically transitioned through the stages where I'm in a relatively senior position now. I have a young family, and I can't just change jobs. I wouldn't be able to afford a pay cut just because he doesn't enjoy what he's doing. He can't just, you know, stop providing for his family. But it's gotten to the point for him where it's, as he puts it, soul-crushing. My family is counting on me, not just for financial support, but I also still need to be a good husband and a father and be there for them emotionally. And I I really know what he means because, like, when when your job totally emotionally drains you, and then, like, you go home and your family 
wants you to be on. They 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 want to tell you about their day and they want you to react to it. And in a positive way, the sort of emotional tone of the parents totally sets the emotional tone for the rest of the family. And, you know, so if you're grumpy, it kind of makes everybody else grumpy. And so as a dad, you don't want to do you don't want to be responsible for that. And so then you start guilt tripping yourself for that. <laughs> and so it's like just compounded. And so I really I really get where Matt's at here. He says that I've always been somewhat of a jack of all trades, a master of none type person, which has worked perfectly throughout my career. But because I've done so many different things, I can't just step into a higher paying development role. I've never really specialized in one area of software development. I have no qualifications. And really, I relied on prior job experience to get where I am today. So what should I do, guys? The weight of all of this is really starting to get me down. And I fear the quality of my work is starting to suffer as well as being there for my family. Short of winning the lottery, it feels like I'll be stuck forever. TLDR is, I don't want to do my job anymore, but I get kind of paid too much to take a big risk to quit. But I want to do software development. That's what I'm really passionate about. Regards from down under, Matt. Ay-yi-yi. That's just like a lot. Should we break it down a little bit here? He thinks one of his main issues about, about career shifting is that he's been a jack-of-all-trades master of none, so he doesn't have something to really highlight to move into a new area. Right. See, what I found interesting about that is that seems that's a pretty common thing that we've seen emailed into the show. However, listener Joseph wrote in and he said, I'd been looking around for places to work for about two years, even before the pandemic hit. I've talked to headhunters. I've taken temp jobs. It's all kind of been crap. And he says, one of the most frustrating things was interviews that wanted very specific skills. We need you to be an expert in Java, or you have to know specific X library or X framework, and you have to have used them for X amount of time. He said, I usually try to remind folks that I had years of experience with using different languages and shifting to different frameworks all the time. To me, it seems like knowing how to solve problems across different domains is more important than just knowing one specific framework and how it works. And I think Joseph makes a really good point here that Matt could internalize. You can flip around some of these things. Your generalist approach means that you are really good at changing and adapting and learning new things. That is a positive. He said, I had multiple interviews, going back to Joseph here, some over the phone, some in person, some on video. And I was starting to think that I was a generalist and I was going to be stuck, that I would either need to take some entry-level position or work really hard on developing a specific skill. Jeez. So here's what I decided to do. If I was going to try to make a concentrated effort at some specific skill, then I was going to make damn sure it was something I was really interested in. I started researching AI and machine learning. I started reading more about it, and I started building a good resume. He said, also, I noticed that a lot of employers were checking GitHub to see if I had any existing code to check that before they interviewed me. Right. So, and he wonders what we thought about that. But I think, so that's, if you do want to specialize, you need to figure out, going back to Matt's original question, he's got to figure out, out of everything he's worked with, what does he really love? Because it's got to be something he has a passion for, so he has the energy to really devour it. And he could look at the fact that he's got a good, safe job as, as, a, as an opportunity for a runway. Make himself a one-year plan. Yeah, I would almost, oh my God, I'm going to be conservative. This hurts. I would almost say, are you sure that you need to, I mean, if you're making good money or stable, whatever, do you really want to go into something new or is it that you, you need to find a way to just like make this job a job and have interests outside? So I think it's, I think it's really good that you said that because my original take was, it sounds like he needs a hobby. 
Right, right. Because now is not an awesome time. Like, there is no, I mean, maybe this is me over-identifying too much, but there is no iPhone launch right now, right? There is no new platform that you can just, like, jump into, take your existing experience. Ride that wave. And make stupid consulting fees, right? In fact, things are, I know a lot of people are going to write in and say, no, my startup's amazing, but things are relatively stagnant right now. Well, you know, and what I did was I just kept working for a bit longer until I could transition to something else. And I, I created myself essentially a two-year plan, if I recall, and took took what was good, stable employment as – and I made it my advantage. It wasn't my prison because I, I – and I, and I kept myself the option of not doing it too. Like I thought, you know, if the consulting stuff really started working out, I just preferred it. Maybe I would just keep, you know, just kind of just use the podcasting stuff as a side hobby. Right. But I was able to make that transition about a decade ago now. But uh, I was so in his spot 10 years ago. I was so in his spot. And I think looking back at it, I'm a little disappointed that I I couldn't break myself out of a mental model I had built and leverage it as more of an advantage. And I think Mike is actually telling you the most real answer is, I'm guessing you're in your 30s. And uh, welcome to some of the shit you have to figure out in your 30s, my friend. Yeah. Not to get super meta on you, but this is where all of those fun decisions that you've been making for the last 15 years have now kind of coalesced into creating a set of constrictions. And you have to be a little more flexible now that you have a family. And you have to be maybe planning a little longer term now. Uh, and sometimes I think for a lot of us, our thirties is about figuring some of that out or it's a different age, but for me and, and, and Mike, you know, and well, it, it goes from, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain to actually, I kind of have something to lose now. Right. And also you're at the same time, I've kind of been doing this, this thing for a while when it comes to work, right? It's kind of getting to that point too. Where it's like, oh, this is starting to become a bit of a drag. And that all kind of lands around the same time sometimes for some of us. <laughs> And it part of it is figuring it out. And, you know, now that I'm looking back at it, I kind of think, eh, I was young. Experience has shown me that the situation wasn't as bad as I thought at the time, although I don't regret any of the actions I took. So try to turn it into an advantage, I suppose. No regrets? No, I, I, I'm, I much prefer doing this. <laughs> really? I could say I, I have a few, but then I'd say too few to mention. Well, I suppose it's like that, right? You don't get no. No, is that a movie reference? That's a song. Regrets, I've had a few, but may I say too few to mention. <laughs> My way, Frank Sinatra. Thank you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I only sing every 50 episodes, so. I should have known it was a Frank Sinatra reference. I, I was just a little slow tonight, I guess. A little slow. You were drinking with Dean Martin before, so you're <laughs> just a little messed up. All right. Now, uh, we got some really important email that came into the show. You know what's funny about this next batch of feedback? Sometimes what gets the most feedback is the stuff that you or I have, like, the most meh reaction to. Like, you didn't really have a strong reaction to Lisp, either way. I don't care about Lisp. I don't know why people keep doing this. Because you don't care, and they want you to care. They want you to care. They want me to care so much. It's like a dog when it's like, I can't play with you, and the dog's like, but I love you. So Cole writes in, he said, I heard Michael claim that he was totally without experience with Lisp, but I would like to point out, this is just simply not true. During the seven-week challenge, Wes wisely exposed him to the best dialect of all, <laughs> the best Lisp, which is Closure. Wes was right. Closure is perfect as it combines the eye-bleeding parents of other Lisps and the functional sadism of Haskell. <laughs> functional sadism. Now, 
I want that on a robe. Functional sadism. That feels like that's nearly show title potential. I mean, I know we have one lined up, but that's damn good right there. I think we should go with functional sadism. Okay, all right. Uh, and he says, but all seriousness, uh, just come join the Lambda Dark Side. We have Emacs. <laughs> so much about this email that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> First of all, that seven-week challenge is the gift that keeps on giving, much like chlamydia. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I guess one day I will try closure again, but I won't be happy about it. No, what you do there is that's just that's just you punt it to Wes. Make you know, gets gets an excuse to get Wes on the show, make him talk about it. He was working on kind of like a side, a little side thing using closure just recently. So, all right, Wes. Here, my first question: Why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> wrong with you you know why you know why just to troll you of course no i'm sure like it's somehow better and i can't see it although i just want to say everybody laughed at me with objective c small talk yeah just saying you know he actually gave me a pretty good reason he actually gave me a really good what was the uh, use case for, well i don't want to spoil it i want to let okay, him so, all right all right all right yeah, all right we'll yeah, get him on yeah, all, right, yeah. all right all right so so i i understand this is a one-two punch of lisp yeah, we have one more. Are you ready? So this is... Uh, Christ's sake. This one, this one, I didn't realize it, but I think I have to become a Lisp guy. I think it's mandatory because it turns out that Lisp was involved in making my childhood uh, what it was. He says, Chris, you know, see, I like Cole's... He's appealing to me. He's like, he's just giving up on you. Chris, I know you're a Trekker, he says. Did you know that the graphics from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock... How can you be deaf with ears like that? ...was done by ILM on Lisp machines. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure they didn't find Spock and he was butchered to death by Ferengi. <laughs> no, no, I think it was... I think that's. I think you're thinking of Battlestar Galactica right there. They have Ferengis, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah, there, there you go. So uh, I, I'm, I'm now a Lisp guy. He got me. I got to admit. Star Trek Three. See, it's a, it's the under it's the most underrated of the Star Trek movies because in Star Trek Three they establish a ton of canon: Earth space dock, the Klingon bird of prey, the actual Klingon language. That's all established in Star Trek Three, and that's just scratching the surface. So uh, I feel like it's it, that's one of it's like a bridge movie that that actually added a ton to the Star Trek universe. So I'm a I'm a Lisp guy now. And it apparently is a gateway to closure. Is that what we're saying? Well, it's a gateway to Lisp, I think, which is a gateway to closure, which is a gateway to Wes being right. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account, and you support the show. We run everything on Linode. It's our go-to cloud hosting provider here at Jupiter Broadcasting 3.0. And one of the things... What are the like? What are like the the joke nods between Wes and I? Is uh, are we going to put that on object storage? Because we talk about how they have great servers all the time that are thirty to fifty percent cheaper than what the other cloud providers are doing out there. But they also have S three compatible object storage, which is an easy way for you to store and access data without the need for running a server in front of it. And I've used that to send samples. Uh, I did a I sent a sample interview to somebody we had on LUP recently. Used Linode object storage. We just put it on there. We were moving back end files and stuff. Why have it move between all the different servers when you could all just put it on object storage and all your different servers can access that object storage? You can host a static website on there. It's 
beautiful. It's one of the many things I love about using Linode. And there's a lot of ways we can take advantage of Linode that are even outside their core, core area that I think most people think of them. And that, that of course, is their virtual machines. Their virtual machines, which run Linux faster and better than anybody else out there. Hold on. I got notes right here. I took notes. I actually got actual physical notes. I read a research paper that came out recently. And this is interesting because one of the comments we get when people switch to Linode after they hear about it here on the show is, Linode seems just faster than everybody else. Turns out there's an actual study that was done that shows Linode is faster. Cloud Spectator recently released a study demonstrating how much faster Linode is at CPU jobs and disk I.O. jobs, faster than Azure, faster than AWS, faster than DigitalOcean. And when you use their dedicated AMD CPU rigs, they're smoking everybody else by like a mile. And the other thing that I thought was interesting that that study showed is that not only do they have the best peak performance, but they also have like the most consistent long-term performance. So if you need a task that's going to run for a while, Cloud Spectator study showed that Linode was the best there as well. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing. Three years before AWS. So they really kind of have dialed this in. They have focused on a core set of functionality, and that's what they do. And then they wrap that with absolutely fantastic, best-in-the-industry support and an incredible cloud dashboard to manage it all. They're dedicated to offering the best in virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. So check them out and get a $100 credit and see what I've been talking about. Linode.com slash coder. Well, Mr. Dominic, the industry is a-changing this week. The guy in charge of Google Play, also, side note, in charge of like a lot of other things like Chrome OS and... Because <laughs> that's how much they care about Google Play. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, but the guy in charge of Google Play is leaving Google, and the guy in charge of App Store developer relations is leaving Apple. All right, so there is only one person and a character I haven't used in years that can explain what an old app developer feels about this. Uh-huh. <clears throat> One second. Two of us died tonight. <laughs> okay. This city no longer pays for apps. They download PWAs. They do microtransactions. I miss... Can't think of an app that made money on the App Store in the last five years. Crap. And definitely can't think of one on Google Play, because come on. <laughs> I was going to say uh, Fortnite, but it's been taken off. <laughs> no, I mean like direct sales. I mean, you buy the app. Yeah. Yeah. So both these guys in the same week out from Google and Apple. Also, Apple claims, I think it was the Australian court, that, yeah, Australia's competition watchdog, they've told Australia's competition watchdog that they are, quote, surprised to hear that some developers have concerns over the App Store and the processes in which apps are reviewed, rejected, or approved. They're surprised to hear those complaints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're surprised. Mike, they're surprised. They're surprised. <laughs> I don't understand. Making us money and turning you all into sharecroppers, but why? You guys are upset? It is wild to see this, to see, to see like uh, the regulators circling in on Facebook, Google, and Apple. They're just like the wagons, you know, they're circled in. And to see some of these positions change may have something to do with that. I think these companies are trying to take proactive steps and some of them, are pretty serious. Like, I think that's why Apple recently added the ability for you to export your iCloud photos to Google Photos directly. It's pathetic that we think that's a huge concession, but... It's a concession like we've never seen from Apple, though. As is being able to change the default web browser and mail app 
and music player, all that is, that's new too. This is one of my old hobby horses, right? Like this is, it's just, it's too late. Yeah. Like no one's paying for software. And if you're a new listener, and I say new within the last too many years to count, there was a time when I used to rail against the downward price in app prices on the app store and, and, and similar markets. Yep, yep. Now there's generally no price, right? Like I was pissed off about going from $10 to five. It's a lot of subscriptions now. There's a lot of those. Yeah, but you know what? Those are scammy. Uh, and you know Apple's going to crack down on like tricking people into doing like weekly subscriptions when they don't know they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, I, I know I said this on a previous episode, but Apple basically mastered and Google and others copied commoditizing your compliment in terms of independent software developers to have an app marketplace or dare I say app store TM. The problem is when you commoditize your compliments, to the extreme where they can't make any money unless they're like the big boys are doing scammy microtransaction crap. Things are bad for the consumer. And I'm, I'm still, I would say ultimately the platform, you know what? I don't see many good, interesting new iOS apps coming out. And I mean, if you're an independent app developer, you have something cool, email us, you never know. But what I, what I mostly see is just like microtransaction garbage. Yeah, or um, device vendor garbage apps that feel like they're template-y and, and horrible that you have to use to, like, set some device up on a network or something. They, like, hired some small software development company to write them an Ionic app just to shit out and configure their device, yeah. And it's amazing how bad they are. And this is true on iOS or Android. Some of them are okay. Some of them are okay. couple of them. A couple of them. I've had some bad experiences. Yeah, they're all bad. Because the problem is they want to be on both platforms, and that is fundamentally a lie. Yeah. So now, remember I said I had a prediction for you. This is interesting. So it, it appears that Apple is developing new HomePod models with screens and cameras. Is, 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 that, is that true? Or is this something you were dreaming about? Oh, you opened your hope chest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I buy this one. Hey, you know, this could be good for the J coin. So we should follow this one closely. Well, two things landed today as we record, that I think are fascinating. Number one, what the, uh, uh, who got, I sorry, I didn't grab their name. But it came out that there is an unused temperature and humidity sensor in the existing HomePod Mini right now. Oh, I fix it. Sorry. I fix it. So there is a sensor that is unused right now in the HomePod Mini. All right, so that was discovered today. Then, also today... It appears that Apple has added FaceTime frameworks to the Apple TV and HomePod OSs and adding that via a future iOS update, uh, 14.5. And they're going to have the AVF capture framework in there. They're going to have the FaceTime and iMessage framework on the HomePod now and on the Apple TV. And uh, Mark Gurman says there is no imminent launch planned for a camera-equipped speaker but it's possible that it could be in the future. So, you know, maybe maybe what they realized is that uh, people with, that do want these speakers, they want screens on them. I don't know. I, I think it's actually kind of nice. We have kind of gravitated towards having one of the Google uh, Home Nest thingies in our place simply because it makes for a fantastic picture frame and my wife likes that. The process is really simple because she just has to star a photo and then it automatically shows up on the Google thing as one of the possibilities. And the fact that it can do timers and has the occasional 
knowledge card lookup that it can do for her or tell her the weather is is nice. And so I could see Apple integrating something like this with iCloud and Apple Music has a screen, Apple Fitness, which also requires video. And they have FaceTime, which would be great if you could FaceTime your HomePod. These frameworks, I think, show what's happening. Open your red book. I have a prediction. <laughs> okay, you got it. It will be overpriced and fail. Ah. All right. Well, see, my, my prediction is, is that an Apple version of this with a screen actually would be successful. That's my prediction. It will fail because they will not be able to help themselves. It'll be too expensive. Right. They, yeah. You know what? The yeah. HomePod, and, and I have Sonos's, the HomePod is superior. <gasps> Ooh, they kind of got to vomit. No, it is. Uh, the HomePod, yeah. it is superior to the Sonos, but it's stupidly priced. Like, I, I don't understand why, why, why did they kill the product instead of just lowering the price? I think they killed it because uh, it's a $400 device with no screen. And they're, now their devices with screens are going to be $400. You're going to have the mini. No, I'm saying it should be $200. Oh, yeah. I know, but this is Apple we're talking about. Do you really want a screen and a camera, like, everywhere in your house? Not a camera. No, not so much. Although, although I have used the Echo drop-in feature, it is nice to have a screen on my desk and have a screen in the kitchen. And so, uh, like, right before I'm about to head home, I'll, I'll drop in and chat with the wife. And she doesn't have to do anything. And she doesn't have to, like, you know, dry her hands off if she's making dinner or whatever. Like, it just works for her. And she can do the same for me. Hey, when you're heading out, it's really simple. Hang on. Maybe she's hooking up an array of Kubernetes or Raspberry Pis. Why is she making dinner? She could be. It's the only time I can get you on that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> because that's actually her use case. Because uh, uh-huh. she, she likes Back to chat with... <laughs> That's true. That's why she uses it. Uh, but I could I could absolutely see us preferring to have a HomePod there. To go... There's a lot of ways you can go with this. Would you pay $400? Yeah, well, I mean... Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. No, that's a little too much. Well, and isn't that the problem with the HomePod that you and I both love, one of us begrudgingly so? No, it absolutely is. I've always looked at these as another app platform in development, and I've always kind of felt like our community, not necessarily saying you or I, but the listeners, I'm blaming them, have always kind of been skeptical about these home assistants because of the privacy implications. And and my argument to that has always been, yeah, but general consumers just don't care. And these things do sell, and this is a market. And if you put a screen on that thing... There's no reason you couldn't also put apps on that thing like you do the watch. God, I hope not. I think it'd be awesome, to tell you the truth. I think it'd be lousy. Imagine this in like a conference room with, uh, you know, Slack or Teams video calling on it or something. I know. That is the exact use case I was just bemoaning. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I I need less Slack in my life. Okay. I just. Yeah, I agree. There's that. Yeah. It's it's, it's funny how Slack was going to replace the tedium of email and it's somehow become the like satanic version of email. Like I, I now love when I get a thoughtfully written out paragraph by paragraph email. Yeah. I just realized I had it so much better with email and I used to hate email so much now, but now I prefer it so much more to, to all the calls. Okay. Here's my last thing. Google just updated their nest. And now did you see that their new nest has sleep tracking? It has a sonar chip in it and it does sleep tracking. Now I'm not saying I like this idea. I was going to (laughs) say, I don't, I don't love this. Um, although they claim it does local processing, but anyways. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, they claim that. They do. Um, it also has like some new machine learning chip on board, so it can do more local command processing as well. 
And I claim every time I boot into Windows, I don't have two martinis first. <laughs> I just argue that the general consumer market just doesn't care about the privacy aspects of it. I think they care. I think you're right. So, the, so I, I agreed with you for years. But you know what? I think after the capital uh, nonsense yeah. and all the shit that Facebook got caught doing, yeah. you know, my mom is like, I hate Facebook. And she does not care. Right. My cousins who are in the accounting business have decided that Facebook is evil based solely on some ill-advised interviews Mark Zuckerberg gave. But their reasons aside, I think people are starting to wake up. Now, I think they still trust Google, though. You're right about that. They still think Google is like a, a benign robot that definitely isn't taking advantage of them. And I think they trust Amazon as well. I trust Amazon. Jeff Bezos just told me this morning that I needed a new chair. Actually, Amazon might creep me up the most out of all of them, to tell you the truth, a little bit. Amazon is predicting my buying habits, which, and it's getting to the point of, honestly, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> yeah, it's been a good year for Amazon. It's definitely been a good year. Especially, like, I've been buying, like, personal care products, like toilet paper and stuff on Amazon now. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, yeah, we've been calculating how much you poop, bro, and uh, it's, it's about time. Subscribe and save, and yeah, I know it. You start. You, there's a line you cross with Amazon where you start. You start buying more intimate things like that, and you yeah. you have to make that choice. Like, all right, all right I'm, I'm going to give them this data point. I mean, I literally <laughs> sat down on the toilet with the Amazon app open. Am I okay with Uncle Jeff knowing that I'm taking a crap right now? <laughs> uh, see now, don't you want a sonar and a camera on that thing? <laughs> no, I'm afraid that I don't. Datadog.com slash coder radio. Go check out Datadog. Man, are these beautiful dashboards. And it really helps if you see them. So go to datadog.com slash coder radio. Go check out what it's what's what's possible. I mean, it's it's a fantastic tool to help you communicate with your team and analyze code level performance across your environment and troubleshoot issues faster. You can do that with Datadog. And Datadog has a continuous profiler that automatically collects profiles from your production servers all the time. So you can analyze any data all your data, or just specific data quickly with minimal overhead. Get a unified picture of your environment by correlating code performance and metrics with your rigs and application-level performance and, of course, server-level performance in real time on their beautiful dashboards. Check them out seriously just to see that. Go to datadog.com slash coderadio and for a limited time, too. If you start a trial and create one dashboard, you get a free T-shirt. But with their tight integrations, their tracing, their log management, and their continuous profiler, it really does make the ultimate platform that enables you to pinpoint the root cause of issues faster than ever. That's extremely valuable. That's going to save you time, save you money, and help you communicate. So go try it for free for 14 days. Go to datadog.com slash radio and get that free t-shirt when you start a trial and create one dashboard. That's datadog.com slash radio. Now, moving on from the tragedy that is these HomePods and, and, and smart assistants that are spy devices, but also strange future app platforms, as I say. And uh, let's talk instead about the new GitLab release. Both you and I noticed this one hit. It's got a couple of features in here that I find pretty handy. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm a GitLab user myself, but... Uh, it's nice to see. Yeah, they've got a new admin mode. It's open source, and this stuff is in the... Uh, I believe they call... I use it. The Community Edition? Is that what they call it? We use it every day, and I don't pay attention. And a vulnerability management. This is not a huge update, I would say. Yeah. You know what? It's enough to be notable. If you are running GitLab, you might consider, depending on how many versions back you are, updating. This is 13.10. Uh, 13 
that admin mode's not bad, right? It's kind of like sudo, but for GitLab. So you can yeah. you can pop into admin mode to do something as you need it and then back to a regular user account without having to go through the full logout and login process. It's such a pain in the ass because I have two, two FA, so it's like, ugh. <laughs> Every time I log in and out. <laughs> Bulk status updates allow security teams to modify the status of multiple vulnerabilities simultaneously. And then the Visual Studio Code revolution continues, making it easy to clone projects from within Visual Studio Code on your GitLab and enabling one-click opening of projects into VS Code. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with the uh, Borg-like march of IE6 to IDE. Yeah. Oh, hey, man, at least it's not nearly as bad as IE6. Yet. You know, and, and the thing is, I mean, I'll say this, too, about Blink, I suppose, but at the end of the day, it's open source, at least, where we never had that with Internet Explorer. Right? That's got to be worth something. We can agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> okay. I mean, I love to see it. I love to see GitLab march on. I think in some oh, ways oh, it's GitLab more I'm fine with. It's oh, yeah, for sure. It's code that I'm starting to become a little... I follow. But I mean, what are you going to do? This seems like it happens all the time. People said the same thing about AOL. People said the same thing about MySpace. It just feels like these things come along and they reign supreme for a while, but it these these don't last forever. Right, right, right. Every 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 king's reign ends. I get it. What goes up must come down. Right. Text me. Right. So far though, we haven't really seen Facebook come down and I doesn't really seem like Apple's going down or Microsoft. I kind of wonder if that old Adam is not as true in the era of these true legitimate tech giants that are like nation wealthy, nation size wealthy. It's almost as if when you have zero interest rate in rich, large corporations, they can indefinitely finance themselves and buy up any potential competition. Yeah, almost like that. Uh, listen to Unfiltered. <laughs> <laughs> there's your plug uh, yeah, uh, so adobe tr uh, adobe has drank the m1 kool-aid yeah yeah and they have correctly genuflected and bent the knee writing a blog post about how wonderful apple is okay good work adobe hey man they know the game they know the game yep they made sure to drop a few juicy quotes that you knew that apple uh brass would be would be reviewing he says uh this is Adobe. They say recompiling large applications for Apple Silicon requires an investment on the developers. But in Photoshop's case, it resulted in a significant performance improvement. We compared the M1 MacBook to previous generation MacBook. Simply just configured, we just converted without doing any major optimizations, and Photoshop was 50% faster than the Intel hardware. Just porting it over. Based on some very specific metrics, I am sure. Yeah, yeah. Although, actually, uh, I think end users are seeing the benefits as well. I think it's only two apps right now that have been, yeah, Photoshop and Lightroom have native versions. And Lightroom also is reportedly working much faster. And Premiere Pro and Audition are in beta right now for Apple Silicon support. Uh, which I think uh, it is possible to get those if you're a Creative Cloud subscriber. Okay, so I, I really am sorry for people who are sick of tired of hearing this, but this is legitimately something I'm still kind of quietly panicking about. And that is, we haven't even realized the potential of the M1 yet. We hear about these applications getting ported, and they're 50% faster. You also hear that like the, the interface is smooth and faster in a way that people have not experienced before. Then you also hear things like it changes resolution Instantly, when you connect or disconnect displays, it's not a big flashy kind of seizure effect. And you you realize that they're about any any week now to release the next version of these in a whole other generation of Mac workstations and desktops. And I 
who have been running Linux since the 90s am worried that a guy like me is going to get tempted because at the end of the day, I am busy. And that smooth, smooth computer goodness is so hard for me to resist. I, I experienced it recently when I finally got a high refresh rate screen and it clicked for me like, oh, this is I'm never going back. And I worry that the M1 would be like that or the M1X or whatever. And then I see this Photoshop stuff and I see I see like Audition is running faster and I start thinking, oh, shit, man, if the production tools end up being way faster, if I could cut a 50 minute render time down to 20 minutes every time I do a show, that could be a huge gain for me. I could get back to my life sooner. I could get back to working on the next thing faster. And I'm worried. I am legitimately worried that the x86 industry in a year or two is just going to look archaic and none of the machines are going to stand up to this kind of performance unless because not only because here's the other problem like battery life it well yeah the battery life which i didn't even think of but the pc side is struggling with a massive chip shortage right now cpus and you you really can't really build a, a, a system right now without just paying outrageous prices but it hasn't seemed to have affected Apple in the same way. And I wonder if that isn't because they literally spend billions to pre-buy up a lot of inventory. And if that strategic investment isn't going to also make it so that way they can actually get these machines out the door while the PC industry really can't ship their latest and greatest stuff to at any scale. So while th- not only are they having a shortage of parts so you can't build fast enough PCs, at the same time, Apple is about to iterate yet again on the M platform with another series of Macs, and we are just now beginning to see the benefits of applications getting ported to the M1, and big old pigs like Photoshop without any further optimization are coming in at 50% faster. Awfully mean to Photoshop. <laughs> I just don't know how desktop Linux is going to is going to be able to really sway anybody to switch into that when this is I mean Wayland is nice, GNOME 40 is nice, the ThinkPad is nice, but it's not M1 nice and I I am worried that's a problem for people who are just into tech. It won't be a problem for the diehard freedom fighting GPL loving, uh, you know, software hippies. Oh yeah, RMS is back. Yeah, I know. It won't. It's not going to sway RMS and anybody who thinks slightly like RMS. But people who are okay using multiple platforms and and have busy lives and have the money to blow on a Mac, I think they're going to. Which he's talking about me. I feel like oh, I just worry. I just worry. I know I shouldn't. I know we've talked about this to death, but it actually is still concerning me, and I just feel like more evidence has been put in front of me. You just panic attacked a lot of words. I did. I'm sorry. I, I'm worried. Let me sum up what I believe your problem is. Okay. Dark side is a, a pathway to... Uh, oh my god, I can't say it because I'm running Intel still. <laughs> Hang on, let me get my M1. Hang on, let me reboot. Oh. <clears throat> now that I'm on ARM, the dark side is a pathway to many abilities, some considered to be unnatural. Yeah, dude, the M1 MacBook Air just donks on my iMac Pro. It's just like... I was compiling C++ the other day, as one does. And the M1's like, yeah, it's done. I'm like, what? It's fine. What do you want? The Xeon's like, oh, hang on, let me spin up this fan for you. And like... This Sunday, Wes and I were rendering out Linux Action News, and I used uh, a newer, faster box than the one I typically use. And it was like significantly faster. And it hit me, if I could have another jump like that with the M1, I, I would really have a hard time talking myself out of it. 
it's a big improvement. And that would be daily. That, that something I do daily would be faster. And something I sometimes have to wait, like if the show, like a show that's an hour long, sometimes like a 45 minute process. So to drop that down to 15, 20 minutes and to get that a minimum of once or twice a week back, oh, that's a, that's a tough argument. And I think the reason why I get so spun up about it is I watched it happen years ago when Apple, like 2006, 2007, 2008, when Apple came out with the Intel MacBooks and GNOME 3 came out and Unity came out. And I watched this exodus and I could see it happen in front of me at events where Dells and ThinkPads just started to become less and less and MacBooks started showing up. And at first it was quaint and my buddy Noah and I would walk around and we count, oh, we counted 15 MacBooks. And then within two, three years, it was we would count how many machines weren't Macs. And, you know, it'd be a dozen. And everything else was Macs. And these are Linux and open source events we're at. And we'd come back and we'd talk about it on air, but we kind of just stopped talking about it after a while because it just came, became old news. My desire to troll you has never been stronger. <laughs> I will give you a semi-serious answer. There is nothing on the roadmap, and I've been paying attention from AMD or Intel, that is going to challenge the M1. And what I presume the M2 just guessing on what the name's going to be right, is going to do. I think resistance is, in fact, futile. Hmm. I mean, you and I can go to a conference, if that ever is a thing again, which I doubt, and I will have my little MacBook Air with 20, hour, 20 hours of battery life, and you will be looking for an outlet. <laughs> and I will make fun of you. The battery life thing is very appealing. All right, well, uh, give me some hope. Let me know what you think. Coder.show slash contact. Maybe there's another path that I'm not seeing. My one argument has always been, with the M1 stuff that I could tell myself was, is yes, but I could build a PC that's faster than an M1 Mac. I could have 64 gigs of RAM. I could have 128 gigs of RAM. I could have two physical processors, right? I could, but in actuality... No one cares. You can't unless you want to spend nearly two grand on a GPU and $800 on a CPU and $300 on the motherboard to run that. And even RAM prices are up right now. Oh, I would not be buying parts right now. That's for damn sure. <laughs> well, Mr. Dominic, I could be wrong. We love the feedback either way, coder.show slash contact. Let us know your thoughts. It's a big part of what we do over here. Also, thank you to our members, the Coder QA team. We have a coderly report that we do every quarter. You support the show. You also get a limited ad feed. You can get all of that at coderqa.co, and we appreciate your support there. Mike's on Twitter. He's at Dumanuku. His company is at the Mad Botter Inc. Is there anything else you want to mention this episode, Mr. Dominic? Oh, speaking of Apple stuff, we weirdly have availability to do iOS or, I guess, cross-platform if you really, really need Android development. So, yeah, if you have that, we have availability starting April 1st. So, Best way to get a hold of you for that? Uh, just tweet me, I guess, or, or Mike at themadbotter.com is fine. There you go. I'm at Chris Lass on the Twitter. The whole podcast network is at Jupiter Signal, and the show is at Coder Radio Show. Links to what we talked about today and more at coder.show slash 406. While you're there, you'll find our contact form. You'll find our RSS feeds, all that. And last but not least, if you really want the next level Coder experience... Join us live Monday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern over at jblive.tv. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. And we'll see you right back here next week. 